Welcome to MI Live, a podcast from Macros Inc., where we talk about how to make your nutrition and fitness goals realistic, achievable, and sustainable. All right, let's get to the show. And we are live today. Brad and I are joined by uh, Dr. Mike Stair. Mike is a fellowship trained physical therapist, a physical therapy educator, got a personal trainer and a nutritionist uh, all in the Boston area. He is also the owner of Orthopedics Plus Physical Therapy and Spectrum Fitness Consulting. Did I get all that? You got it all. Ah, so like, so now I have two doctors. Um, Brad Dieter, PhD extraordinaire, <laughs> is right there. Doctor Mike Stair, and then Lonely Jay is right here. Um, and that's about it. That's all I got. So, how are you today, Mike? Thanks for coming on. I'm awesome. I'm doing great. How about you guys? Darn near perfect. Good. I think it's been a uh, almost about a year since we since we met uh, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it yeah. was at the uh, at the cookie off, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. At the yeah. Wow, after copious year. amounts of food too. That's probably yeah. about thirty pounds heavier. Yeah, it's crazy. That was a year ago. I can't yeah. believe that. Holy cow! Yep. Wow, we've been and, and we've been working on projects together and been come a long way. Started projects, stopped, came back to it. Been a long, yeah. a long yeah. roundabout. So for we will we got some viewers already who are just interested in Mike and Mike I I think Brad laughs at me because every time I your, your last name is Stare it's not a hard one but I think I've gone with Mike Strong Mike Strange Mike, Mike Storm <laughs> like and, and it's not like I don't talk to you every single week while we're working right, thing. Right. It's, it's I think I go Mike what the hell Mike S you know who I'm talking about <laughs> well I told I told her get it Mr Worth I mean uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> that happens. Exactly. Worth is the uh, the number one thing that people people come up. My favorite is when they call me. They is when like I'll call in the bit. Okay, Frank. I get that all the time. Frank. No, Jay. No. Okay. You look like a Frank. Yeah, I don't like on the phone. So, all right. Well, while everybody's coming in, if you guys have questions for any of us, feel free to ask them. But we will jump right in. So, our first thing we're going to talk about, um, and since we have Mike, a physical therapist, with us, we'll talk about some injuries. So, let's go over uh, injury prevention. So, Mike, if you had to pick a blanket statement, we'll just see where the conversation goes from there. A blanket statement for for everybody: the number one thing that people can do on a daily basis to prevent injury during exercise okay so injury during exercise i would probably say the first thing is look at your logs and and take a log because i find that one of the most common reasons why people get hurt is volume or load progression is is too great um very rarely is it one exercise i see very rarely is it a certain style or type of training um it's simply when they have rapidly changed from where they previously were to what they're currently doing now um, so load management, volume management, um, a very basic rule of thumb I give people is that if you increase things by about more than 10% in a week, uh, your likelihood of seeing an injury coming about is going to be pretty high. Okay. I like that. The 10% rule. That's a good one. So how do you try to help people quantify that load, right? I think a lot of us, myself included, most of the time just going to go to the gym and, and work out and don't really track our load so what are some things that people can do that are not like overly intensive to like start having an idea of what what are they doing at work like what is that load yeah i I like two methods uh my favorite one is just the rpe you know rate of perceived exertion um 
the reason why you know quantifying it with you know exact loads is because people are using different implements. You know, sometimes they're using weights, sometimes cables, sometimes bands. Um, but pretty much everybody could rate the intensity or the, or the difficulty of the load uh, on a zero to ten scale. Um, so if they've been adding RPE of you know let's say six or five or so, um, and then they're maxing out and they're going to be at a ten or so, so that's one. Um, and I think the other that I like, although I think it's a little bit more difficult, unless you've had several weeks, if not months of experience, is the reps and reserve. Um, so, you know, if you finish a set and you said, I, I probably had about three or four more in, and then you all of a sudden switch and say, you know, I read this article on, you know, uh, failure training, and I'm going to do five sets to, you know, to failure. Um, that's obviously a recipe for disaster. You haven't uh, rest and reserve is zero. So those are two of my favorite. Um, but then some obvious ones, number of sets, um, and then the simple multiplication sets times reps. Fair enough. I like that. Just yeah, vo volume and the RPE scale is something I think that's a uh, not controversial. When to implement it? You know, a lot of time, uh, yeah. especially people new to lifting, and they they can't implement the RPE scale because they don't know what their exertion actually is. Do you think that, that most injuries, do you see that most injuries from, from weightlifting or sports come from the beginner in the activity, from the intermediate or the advanced person in that sport or activity? You know, I think a lot of it comes from people not recognizing uh, the distinction between the pain of injury and the strain of effort. Oh, and my questions to ask you, I have like the exact same verbatim. Oh. <laughs> and that's, um, that's hard. And I think a lot of it is, is psychological. I think there's a certain type of person who thrives on, um, on hard work and part of their success is based on not stopping when things become uncertain or difficult. Um, so those are the people that I think are, are more advanced. And they look at pain as something that they can work through, that they can push through. Um, so they're probably the ones that are getting hurt from too much intensity. Um, I think it's the inexperienced people that are getting hurt from, they get excited and they see a new shiny object and they, they look at somebody doing some, some cleans and some overhead snatches and say, that looks awesome. Um, I'm going to switch to that and I'm going to follow that program. And they're jumping around in different programs. And so it's hard for them to gauge the intensity, the volume, and the discomfort they're getting. So um, I think it depends on the situation, of course. But um, <laughs> who was that chiming in there? My cat. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was Brad or something. It was. But, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, known to make those types of noises at times. Right, right. I wasn't sure if that was a, an approval, you know. <laughs> Or no, not? It's not like that. You said that you were talking bad about people who like to clean and jerk. That's his favorite exercise. So. Okay. Yeah, that's what I figured. So, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> so, so, what are some of the most common injuries that you see that are easily preventable? I think the most common are uh, are shoulder problems. Um, I the reason being is that uh, there's so much. Uh, so much mechanics involved in it. And there's so many opportunities to change existing exercises. For example, um, let's say you're doing squats. A lot of people that have uh, instability in their shoulder or lack of range of motion, 
um, will look to, well, maybe it has something to do with my pressing. Maybe it has something to do with my shoulder exercises. Uh, but a lot of times I see their shoulders getting jacked up because they're being pinned in external rotation that they don't have any business being there. They don't have that range of motion. And you're pinning it there behind a bar. Um, simple technique things, simple tweaks. You can keep people with shoulder pain in the game, uh, usually by making simple habit or, or tweaks in, in positions. So it's super common. I mean, I don't know anyone that's older than 35 that doesn't have a bad shoulder, you know, that lifts. Everyone does. Ah, you know, I used to bench this, but then my bad shoulder. So, or I can't do X exercise because of that. My elbow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where I have, when I see somebody come into the clinic hurt from working out, that's where I get really excited because they're thinking, Oh, I got to take three months off. I'm like, no, no, no. We can make some simple tweaks here. Um, that's probably the biggest one. Um, next are back issues. And the reason why I think the back ones are easier to fix is because a lot of them aren't being hurt in the gym. A lot of them are getting hurt in their day-to-day life and their ergonomics and how their, you know, what I call spine hygiene is taking place. And uh, many times they're looking to change what they're doing in the gym. And oftentimes I start what they're doing outside of the gym. Um, so those are two of my, my, the ones I think I have the most success with. I like that beat, the back, the, that everybody has a shoulder injury. I mean, because it's true. Every every single person that I know over thirty five has a, oh, it's my bad shoulder, and that's now that that actually leads on to one of my questions that I had is with these old, you know, I have that old injury from twenty years ago that you know my old football injury. Yeah. Is it possible to 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 get over that? Are they still? Do they actually still have? Do you find that most people actually still have that injury? or they're, they're just afraid of re-injuring it. And if they do have that injury, is it possible after like a 20 year old injury to rehab it and move past it? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a fascinating topic for me because that's how I got into this whole world from accumulating massive amount of injuries from 20 and 25 years ago. Um, so I'm definitely living proof of it. I tend to see a lot of that in my practice. Um, the amount of people that I've seen that have had ruptured rotator cuffs that have been repaired, and then they successively rehabbed it and it ruptured again and they didn't get it repaired because either there wasn't enough tissue available um, or they simply just didn't want to endure the process again and go back to bodybuilding and go back to powerlifting in their 60s, 70s. Uh, there's too many cases to count. So I can say without hesitation that, yes, that is definitely possible. And one of the neat reasons why I was just reading this article, um, several articles by Jill Cook. The emerging change in how we're looking at, let's say, tendon issues, for example, is very rarely do tendons actually heal. Um, tendons usually stay uh, pathological even after their initial insult. But what ends up happening is the other parts of the tendon end up getting stronger and thicken. So even when there's ruptures and even when there's, uh, there's mechanical damage to the tissues, it seems that our tissues can adapt um, without quote unquote healing. That's why these MRIs look God awful in these people, yet they're able to still continue. Um, so there's a lot of examples of that throughout the body. So, um, I get very optimistic about that. Yeah, no, that made, that was probably the most optimistic, no nonsense answer. I think I've ever read or heard on the, on the topic of old injury rehab. Cause I know when I was in high school, I tore my right rotator cuff and I didn't have surgery. I went through therapy for it and, it 
it, it doesn't give me problems really ever unless when I was a fireman, it would hurt if I was crawling around a lot and it had a lot of weight just on that shoulder, it would start yeah. to hurt. And I was told by many, many, many therapists that I'm just going to have to deal with it for the rest of my life. Um, and then once I started lifting extremely, like religiously and got built up a lot more muscle, I never had issue with it again. Yeah. And, and I want to clarify something that's real important. Um, <laughs> I uh, ruptured a, a disc in my low back carrying uh, spinal cord injury patients when I was in my early 20s. And who, who had, the gentleman who became my mentor had a really interesting statement to me. He said, you're never going to have a normal back, but you're going to be able to do whatever you want. And his, his, the way he's saying that was that you have to treat it differently. You can't abuse it like a healthy back, but you can still do whatever you want, provided you treat it well. And I'm in the same boat as you, Jay, with the, the rotator cuff. I did the same thing, tore my rotator cuff. I can't sleep on it all night. You know, I'll wake up with a dead arm. Yep. Um, I can't, you know, grab something in the back of my car seat and yank it over the, the top of it. You know, it'll flare it up. But if I treat it well and I exercise frequently, I can still play in softball leagues and still, you know, do overhead lifts and, you know, the things I want to do. So I, I think you have to respect the anatomy. It's not that anatomy doesn't matter and these changes aren't significant. It's just that you have to treat yourself a little bit better than you otherwise would had you not had those injuries. Agreed. That's interesting. It's nice to know, though, that you're that I'm not alone with the uh, with the random rotator cuff pain. That's kind of a thing that you know you always wonder if, like, am I am I am I just broken? Like, is it permanent? Is this normal? And I yep. like your perspective of you know I'm still able to do it. I just have to you know it's 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 I can do it without pain. I can live without pain. I just have to modify, but I'm fully able and, and capable and I don't have limitations. There's just things that cause some discomfort sometimes. Yeah. So how much in your experience, because I asked this question a little bit selfishly is how much of the recovery from kind of a long-term injury to kind of normal function is mental versus physical? I would say it is at least 70% mental. Okay. It, it's huge. Um, from the positive and the negative, um, your mental outlook on that, you could be your own worst enemy and you can be impatient and you can be uh, thick headed and, um, or you could be on the other side fearful and uh, fatalistic and uh, apprehensive. Uh, both are, are pretty difficult challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Um, I think that's probably where when you hear therapists talk, it's where they talk about the art and the, the you know, the science, yeah. the art is recognizing that part and having the way to, to convince somebody that yes, you can load it. Yeah. Your tissues will adapt. No, it won't be better in three weeks. No, you can't stop after six months, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's a huge, huge part. And, um, I think that's the part, if I could go back 20 years ago, I would have spent more time learning. Um, rather than pounding the biomechanics, not yeah. to say it's not vital, but it's, it's a huge part, man. So building on, on, on Brad's question, I want to jump into the next topic, which is injury recovery. And, uh, again, we'll, we'll just see where the kind I mean, this has been a, a great conversation. We've hit all the points that I had written down to keep us moving. Um, so let's start with like, when is, this is a conversation you and I have had. And one of the projects we've been, the project we've been working on. When is enough rehab? I mean, obviously, a, a therapist will tell you, oh, you have a rotator cuff injury. It's 16 weeks. Here's your program. Or your insurance says, I'm paying for 24 weeks, and you're magically healed at 24 weeks. Um, when, when does a person know that I'm, I'm, I'm good? I don't need direct rehab on this specific 
injury anymore? That is uh, that is an awesome question, and and I think it's a little bit complicated because we do exist within those constraints as you just mentioned. Insurance. Um, when does rehab end, and when does therapy begin? Um, I look at it as a continuum. Rehab really never ends. Um, when I discharge a patient, I tell them my job was to get you to the starting line. I didn't bring you to the finish line. I'm getting you to the point where you can now do this independently. Um, and what makes people feel empowered enough to be independent and self-managing that, um, that could be three days for some people. It could be, you know, years for others. So um, I really look at it as to what extent can somebody um, figure out the, the difference between the strain that causes or facilitates adaptation and healing versus the pain that causes injury. Um, they know how to, I use a football analogy. They're able to know how to call an audible. You know, they got a game plan and they can get the line of the scrimmage, but when variables change, how do they quickly adapt? Um, are they competent at doing that? Um, do they know how to progress and regress the routine? Um, some people, I don't think ever get to that point and they always will need guidance. Other people will get there very swiftly. So um, I don't really think it has to do with any physiological marker. I don't think it has to do with any external outcome. Um, I think it more has to do with the individual's behavior and the type of support that they need. Okay, perfect. That was a, and these are like the most enlightening questions we've ever had on this show, Brad. Normally we're talking about astronaut nutrition. This is- <laughs> <laughs> and I, by the way, I wish I could tell you, you know, about 24 weeks. That's what, that's when you know you're all set. Yeah. Um, but fortunately it doesn't fit in that. No, but, but what you're saying isn't even like, oh man, it's just like, oh, it's not like a disappointing, like there's no answer. It's like a realistic, oh, that may, that makes sense to me. I get it. Like you're putting it into realistic words that I get it. So kind of sure. um, so with, with injury recovery, when when I'm in rehab, um, we uh, you know a lot of people out there. I might tear my rotator cuff, or maybe I uh, a common one we see is people with hand injuries. Um, can I still lift? Let's say I'm, I I tore my rotator cuff, or I to, we had a client once who tore their pec. Yeah, uh, can I still lift other body parts while I'm rehabbing? So if I have an upper injury, am I good to lift lower? Am I good to lift if I have a right side injury? Am I good to lift left side? Oh, absolutely. For, for two main, very clear factors. Um, number one is, you know, you mentioned this, the psychological part of this. Um, when people get injured, they're crushed. And it's not because of the pain. I mean, that's part of it, but that's relatively momentary. It's the realization of their vulnerability. It's the catastrophication of, oh, my God, I'm getting old. Now I can't do this. I can't do that. It's the realization of all the inconveniences. Life's hard enough. Now they got to figure out how to do this and that without an arm or a leg that they used to using. Um, So mentally, the the biggest thing I can do to help somebody acutely is show them all the things they can do. Because for the last 24 hours, maybe even longer, people have been telling them what they can't do. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And then they finally meet somebody like, hey, let's go to all the stuff you can do. And their mind hadn't even gone there. So that is huge psychologically. Physiologically, um, there was a really good research, and I'm, I'm blanking on the term. I think it might be called a bilateral effect. But in essence, they looked at people who had fractured um, arms. One group was advised not to use their unfractured, uninvolved arm uh, you know, with exercise. 
The other group with the fractured arm was asked to do weight training with their uninvolved arm. When they got out of their cast, the group that had been doing weight training with their uninvolved arm, the involved arm came out of the cast relative to the other people stronger. And they think it had something to do with the neurological connections that were facilitated during that process. So, um, yeah, you can actually help the healing of it. It was previously thought you don't want to cause a muscle imbalance. But um, I strongly encourage people to strengthen the other limb, uh, strengthen the uninvolved tissues, of course, um, not only for the psychological benefits, but for definitely for the, yeah. uh, the rehab benefits. So, Brad, if you have a question, feel free to chime in. I have two more that I wanted to get through. No, but it, what he's mentioning is really interesting because that's we see that a lot, especially in like the EMG literature, is there's definitely that crossover effect on each side. And so yeah. we uh, – it is, it's very interesting in that you can train one side of your body and actually see some neurological and musculoskeletal adaptations on the other side. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's crazy that you can, that it happens. I, I remember reading that study too, and I can't remember where I read it. It was part of the ISSN diploma program, and I can't remember mm-hmm. all of it. But yeah, no, I'm going to have to look that up again because that's an interesting one. The two questions, one, we don't have to expand too much on it. Just really touch base. Sure. And are, are there, you know, any, everything I have read, and, and I think Brad and I have had this conversation too. Everything I've read is, you know, when you're recovering from injury, you can be in a, 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 a slight caloric surplus with, with higher protein intake. Is there anything outside of that that you recommend or do you not agree with that statement? Uh, no, I've, uh, I've heard that your caloric needs can rise by up to after post-surgical mm-hmm. is where I've seen most of the research by up to 20%. Okay. Um, so, um, I believe, uh, doesn't Lyle have a, have an entire book on that, uh, McDonald? I, I haven't checked it out, but uh, I've seen some of the research that you referenced on it. And the most definitive I can find is post-operative uh, for like a total hip replacement, a trauma um, for at least, I think it was about four to six weeks. It was elevated. Yeah, and, and John John Bernardi and Lyle McDonald agreed on a subject, so I figured that that subject had to actually be, be true um, when they both when they both like had the exact same. I mean, I think John actually referenced Lyle, in that. so I was like, wow, that's a they must actually agree in something, so it must be true. So I just want to see if there's any caveat, like ah, but perfect. And then the last question I have for injury re- uh, recovery before we go into re-injury prevention, uh, actually after this question, we'll get to some of our questions and then at our last point. Um, when I'm, you know, you, you see these athletes who have, and obviously the money that is spent on them goes a long way um, and genetics in them plays a huge role, I think. But you see these athletes who have ACL tears and they're out for, you know, eight months, a year, um, but they come back and not only do they perform where they were, they perform better than they did very often. Obviously, with Tommy John surgery, it's not always the case. Um, right. It's not always the case with everyone, but you do see it fairly often, especially I'm a big hockey fan. It used to be, and you see it a lot in hockey players. They they get knocked down, they have surgery, they come back 10 times better. So for the average person it, who, who doesn't have 12, 20, you know, 12 hours a day getting paid to train to get back to where you were, is it possible and realistic to get back to where you were physique and and strength wise prior to your injury is that a realistic expectation it it really does depend on the type of injury um when it's a achilles when it's a tendon um the elasticity of the tendon is permanently damaged after you have that Um, we still see people going back to play basketball you know to jump but um i have not seen any research to show that they can jump as high they can run as fast 
I ruptured my patella tendon. I, I can definitely feel the, the difference there. Uh, as far as physique, though, um, I've seen, I haven't seen any indication that that wouldn't change. You can't get the, the same amount of hypertrophy. When it's a ligament, though, um, the recoveries for that are phenomenal. What people have been able to do from that um, are great. Um, I believe, however, as you're mentioning, the athletes after coming back after eight, you know, nine months, um, that is very, very rare in the general population. Um, (laughs) The re-injury rates are very high. Uh, They are, this accelerated rehab is starting to get a little bit of some backlash. Uh, People are saying that it shouldn't be beyond a year now or before a year. Um, I think the jury is still out on that. I'm I'm, I'm thinking of Derek Rose. I know I'm a Bulls fan too. That feels. And that guy just has so many, like, I can't imagine how, what problems he's going to have later on in life. Yeah. Yeah, that that's pretty clear. We know that um, when you have an ACL injury when you're younger, you're going to have premature arthritis. Yeah. Perfect. Well, it has been interesting to see how long and how patient they're being with uh, Katie's Achilles. Yeah. Yeah. Like, exactly. With who? Uh, Kevin Durant. Durant. Oh, yeah, I'm not a basketball person, so I have no no. What? Idea. Ah, yeah. No idea. So, <laughs> so let's, we have, we have a couple questions here and then we'll jump on to our last topic. I think that child disappeared into the abyss that is his bedroom. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, Abigail Minx. I hurt my right knee six to seven years ago in jujitsu. It healed and no longer causes me any pain, but I still have a lot of instability and balance issues on that side, as well as difficulty engaging that quad as well on the left. Uh, is there any hope that eventually it might get better? I've only been lifting for three-ish years. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, again, seeing this a lot with myself, with other folks too. Um, one thing that I find very consistent people have had injuries like yours, Abigail, is uh, uh, with the instability is proprioception goes out the window. Uh, one example of this is uh, try standing on one leg mm-hmm. and uh, concurrently turn your head back and forth or you know, shut your eyes. When the visual field isn't there to compensate, your proprioceptive system is exposed. And I find that many people rarely fully get proprioceptive function back until they challenge it um, in one of those two circumstances. Uh, the other thing is people are remarkable, especially athletes, at compensating. Um, so I find putting yourself in positions where you can't compensate, so uh, single leg squats, lunges, step-ups, single leg deadlift. Um, it's amazing how your other leg will hide your weakness on your involved leg. Um, so yeah, I think even if it's been three years, if it's been six years, um, I, I think that's not a, a time frame that's too long. Uh, admittedly it does get harder though, as time goes on. Yeah. And Abby is actually one of our moderators in our group. So for our project, we might have to contact Abby for some things. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the questions I follow up on Abby's and what you said, kind of interesting, and maybe it's way off any topic. Have you guys ever heard of the, the person, the amputees who have uh, on their hand and they have a lot of pain, like wherever the amputation is. So mm-hmm. they put them in a mirror box with the other hand. They yes. Yes. That to me is the most fascinating. Is that, is that based on the similar thing of what you're talking about? Kind of similar structure. Uh, not as much on the proprioceptive thing. That is more on the uh, perceptual issues. That's more on the sensory cortex and the mapping of the sensory cortex gets smudged. Uh, yeah. A very crass example of that would be like, if you're trying to scratch your back and mm-hmm. somebody's down here by your side and then you keep saying, no, 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 it's up further. Next thing you know, they're up on your right, you know, scapula. Like your body's ability to map it gets all smudged and screwed up. 
Yeah. Um, so that's a different scenario, uh, but not completely unrelated. I mean, right. those can also be issues of pain. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Did you have something? Well, no, I was just going to ask. So you, you kind of mentioned how we're master compensators. And would you say that we, our bodies generally kind of take the path of least resistance? Like we find the most mechanically efficient way to do things, the least painful way to do things, the most efficient way to do things. And so even if it ingrains kind of long-term bad motor behaviors, we kind of default to that state. Yeah. And I mean, depending on the context, it may not even be bad motor behaviors. Um, one of the biggest errors that has been made in managing um, any condition has been how they dealt with cerebral palsy. Uh, back in, even when I was a child, they used to cut their heel cords. And, you know, you've seen people with CP walk, you know, they had that weird gait where they walk on the toes, thinking that, well, that's aberrant, that's wrong. Let's cut their heel cords. They, can't, they couldn't walk anymore. They realized that's a compensation that actually was helpful. Yeah. Evolutionarily, it would be ridiculous for a body to not compensate when we've had a blown out Achilles or a blown out ACL. Um, however, we haven't adapted to the fact that you can replace all of that and normalize the function relatively. So, um, yeah, I, in, in short, I think you're exactly right. And if there's a capacity to rehab, we have to kind of tr uh, trip that, that neural tendency of efficiency and adaptation. There was a, I don't know if, I, I'm, I've been hooked on Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan show for the past, like, I don't know, six months, like every night, that's what we watch when we go to bed. And there was one last night from his archives that I was watching. And it was about how we, it was about the missing link in human evolution and how we went from chimpanzees in the rainforest to walking bipedal primates. And it was, it was really interesting when to me and maybe, and I kind of knew it, but like hearing it, like instead of going from trees, where we're supposed to go like this, we stretched out and we're supposed to go like this now. Um, and that was, I, I don't know, I, it's a little off topic, but that, that whole conversation that you had reminded me of that. And I thought, yeah. So, um, Victoria said, I currently have a sore Achilles from overwalking. I think I have been, uh, icing and elevating it. Is there anything else I should do? Yeah, this is, comes right out of um, the research I was just reading from uh, Jill Cook, and I strongly recommend you check that out, uh, Victoria. Um, a lot of uh, Achilles tendinopathies is what we're calling it now, and they're not calling it tendinitis anymore because the prevalence of or the, 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 the evidence of seeing uh, uh, inflammatory cells in a tendon is really low. So treating it with rest and uh, ice with the assumption that there is a active inflammation going on in spite of having pain is not best practice anymore. Uh, that has changed dramatically over the last 10, 20 years. Um, what the Achilles does respond brilliantly to is load. Um, even if there's a certain presence of pain. In the early stages, what we found, tendons love load. Um, the trick is finding that Goldilocks zone. Enough load so we get tendon adaptation, but not so much that we get irritation and inflammation. The simplest way to do it, if it's really irritable and, and angry, uh, Victoria, is to do isometric loading. You're standing on a step with your heel over the edge. Over time, what you want to do is very slow and relatively intense. So this should feel like a 8, 9 out of 10 in terms of difficulty. Um, slow, steady, eccentric uh, loading uh, with your heel going over the edge of a step. Um, so loading the tendon is what it needs. It's a little counterintuitive. Um, but rust, ice, inflammation, um, that doesn't usually uh, treat it very well. Awesome. 
Awesome. So, so the RICE acronym is 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 been changed, correct? Wait, well, specifically when we're talking about tendons and especially large, thick tendons like the patella tendon and the Achilles, um, it is drastically changed away from the rest and heel type of thing. Instead, it's load. And uh, there's two basic parameters, by the way, of loading. I think this is important. One is load it twice a day, highly intensely, seven days a week. The other is load it more like a traditional weight training program, three days a week, um, you know, three to four sets slow eccentric, prolonged holds, and then slow concentric. Uh, the compliance rates of the latter was about 96% compared to 80% with the former. Um, success rates were 90 to 100%, depending on the research. Um, so lower lethal dose is what I'm a big fan of, and uh, that's what I would recommend. Cool. Uh, but it's a, it's a really interesting topic, and it's something that's really evolving. Yeah, no, that is definitely interesting. And then our last question comes from Alice, and this is a torn lateral meniscus. She's done with physical therapy, but it still pops and clicks and medial pain. Should she do surgery? The only circumstance where it's even marginally advisable to consider surgery in that case is if you are not able to extend your knee, and when you try to extend your knee, it feels like there is a, an actual lock. There has been, um, I would say, at least two clinical practice guidelines released by every major rheumatological or orthopedic association and um, meta-analysis in the last probably four years that have universally found meniscal surgeries uh, are not effective um, or not more effective than uh, conservative care. Um, so we are seeing a huge, huge change in how we manage a meniscal issue. There is some evidence showing that with meniscal surgeries, the likelihood of further problems like arthritis is dramatically higher. So we have minimal to no uh, benefit, and we have uh, not an insignificant risk. Um, so uh, the only exception to that is, again, a locking mechanism, meaning that you can't extend your knee because it's locking. Um, so I would strongly go against that, and the evidence on therapy in that case is very strong. Well, all right. So, is, and then is some of the reason that they have professional athletes like the, the high-profile one last year, the the Zion Williamson torn meniscus? Is that simply a function of return to to play and the value of his contract over the the short versus long-term outcome? Is that generally why those decisions are made? I, you know, and I don't know why those decisions are made, to be honest, but I think the main one, to be honest, is that it's forced rest. Um, it legitimizes, um, either in the player's mind or in the people managing his condition, uh, it legitimizes the forced inability to load both, both in terms of volume and, and intensity. Um, They've done placebo uh, studies. Uh, sham yeah, the versions. sham studies, yeah. So why wouldn't they just do a sham on the athlete and just <laughs> tell them that he had it? Right, right. There would be some, some big conflicts in, uh, in, uh, in advantage of that, but I would love to see that surgery. Uh, that started. <laughs> All right, we have, we have a couple more questions, but let's get to our last topic, and then we'll jump back to all of our questions. And our last one is, is – uh, oops. Re-injury prevention. I know this is something you and I have talked extensively about. So – um, if we have re-injury prevention, what is like the best long-term solution for re-injuring, like a blanket statement again, the best long-term advice you can give for somebody after they've completed rehab, they've had an injury, they've gone through rehab, they're good. But in the back of your head, it's always there that you're going to re-injure it. What's like the, the best tip you could give someone to prevent that from happening? 
don't stop. Don't stop, you know, therapy. Don't stop, you know, training. Don't stop whatever it, it is. Um, a lot of these injuries are magnified under fatigue. Um, a lot of them are due to lack of confidence. So they disproportionately load the tissue. And then when they have to load it from a sudden stop, you know, the tissue is not prepared for it. Um, that would be my simplest explanation is, is don't stop. And I'll give you one real quick stat on this going to extremes. Um, total hip replacement patients. Uh, they followed up with these patients two years after surgery. 80% of them were weaker two years after surgery than they were six months after surgery. And the reason being is that most therapy ends at six months and they stopped it, assuming that they attained a certain level of strength that was going to stay with them. Gotcha. Hmm. That's an interesting one. So is, what, what injuries do you think are what, – what do you – when do you see from sports injuries, um, what injuries do you see people – re-injuring the most ankles 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 it's it's i'd say if you sprained your ankle you got anywhere from a 25 to 50 percent chance of spraining it again uh hamstrings uh it's a personal one for me i probably tore my hamstring nine times what do Um, you do to get hurt so much you you like had every injury (laughs) it it would take up three of your shows for me to explain it all (laughs) Um, so note to self, don't work out with Mike because he, not that he's going to do something wrong, but luck is against you. Apparently, uh, I would say don't play with Mike. You don't know, work. Out, I'm pretty. I'm pretty good in a controlled environment. Once don't you get play, a, a ball or some ball. type of game involved, that's where bad things happen. <laughs> um, but those are the ones that are really hard. It's. It's sometimes I tell people like, listen, you can do everything right, and your likelihood of is is relatively significant of having it again. Okay. Perfect, Brad. Do you have any, any follow-up on that? I don't, I don't I, think so. I yeah. guess. How, so let's say somebody has some sort of like ankle injury. How detrimental is it to rely on like external fixation, like a brace or something like that um, for kind of long-term safety? Like how much does that become like a maladaptive crutch versus actual safety mechanism? Yeah, there, there have been some suggestions that patellofemoral problems increase in basketball players that primarily use a uh, bracing. They, su- they suspect it's due to the lack of dorsiflexion. Um, I'm not aware of any evidence that's actually proved that. Um, although anecdotally, I, I do know a lot of people that work with that population. They've seen that correlation. Um, I don't know if it's because the acute lack of dorsiflexion or the chronic adaptation of a lack of dorsiflexion, it might be correlated with that. Um, looking at other areas like the spine um, with bracing or the neck with bracing, um, they have not found that prolonged bracing leads to weakness, leads to any disuse, leads to anything other than sometimes an inflated level of confidence. So they think that the Superman, when they have a brace on their midsection, but when it comes to ankles, uh, I say the external fixation in the absence of having fully recovered ligaments, um, the benefit probably outweighs the risk. Um, so if you're playing basketball, I'd say definitely go for the bracing. Overcompensating for that would be fine. And then train outside of the brace. So competition brace outside, go without it. Okay. Hmm. What... I want to. I want to circle. If anybody, Brad, if you had any more questions or anybody had no, any, I'm good. Back to something you had said earlier, yeah. Mike, and that was with with pain. And when we got into the RPE scale discussion, yeah. And how? 
I think one of the problems that people have, and I know, I, I know I've had it personally, and I know we, we hear about it from our clients and we see it in our Facebook group every day. And that is, is this pain and do I, what do I do? And I, you know, so it's a couple part question. The first one is how do you identify real pain versus discomfort? Yeah. Uh, like if you had to give a tip to somebody on that. Um, your brain doesn't dis- distinguish those things, by the way. Okay. Um, so it, there's not a, a, a very strong scientific way that you can say, well, this is how you know it's that. Um, what I do tend to know is uh, what correlates with tissue damage and what correlates with a willingness to train again um, usually has to do with the magnitude of the pain as rated by the, the, the person and the, how long it lingers. So a, a great rule that I've used successfully with people is that if your pain gets beyond a five um, during training or and it lasts for greater than a day, mm-hmm. you've probably started to flirt with the lines of causing damage that was either unnecessary or counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, that I've found um, has worked very, very well. And the thing I think that works the best about it is that it's something, it's like a contract that I have with the patient. Like we have established some meaningful guidelines that we're both comfortable with. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like investment. It's like, okay, you're going to put this money down. You may lose this much. You might gain this much. What's comfortable for you? And I find that um, mutual agreement is probably a big source of success for a lot of folks as opposed to having some arbitrary di- you know, uh, definition saying, no, this clearly isn't real pain. Or this is tissue damage pain. Um, yeah. I don't know where I'll ever find that, but um, it's worked well for me personally. I found. Yeah, and then I, I like that we that the brain can't identify. That's a good thing I think to know. And you, you kind of answered it. And my follow up would be when if you had to give like like somebody's you know I'm I'm asking you you know I can't tell you know I when I when I lift I have a little bit of soreness in my shoulder. I could keep going, but it's a, it's a little like pain right here. Um, do I, do I, when I, I don't get it every time I live, just sometimes when I get it, should I stop for the day? Um, should I, should I take a, should I stop exercise completely? Should I just stop that movement? Can I do other shoulder exercises or should I have that pain for the first time in three months? Should I just take a complete week off of lifting my shoulders? I'm a huge fan of optimization versus avoidance. Okay. Um, so I think pain is and especially if it's of that, magnitude where you're not making a clear definitive like oh this is really no big deal or this really freaking hurts and i need to change something up if it's in that i'm not sure what i can do um that's usually where i say well that's a that's an opportunity to learn you know don't just stop put down the barbell and move on to something else maybe if you do a false group it allows a slight extra rotation and that just a little bit extra rotation makes you know your your tissues you know whatever for whatever reason function in a better way maybe if you go into decline a little bit versus incline you know maybe you change your grip a little bit maybe it's a load issue maybe it's a range of motion maybe you put a you know uh, a foam roll or half foam roll on your chest and you stop that range of motion it gives you the opportunity to explore and learn you know pain is is a uh, is good data and it's not always a scary thing to avoid um that being said that being said it should be respected you shouldn't just say oh that's just you know weakness leaving the body (laughs) you know that that's it's good feedback listen to it and maybe we'll find it out so i don't know if that answers your 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 issue that directly but 
Uh, it didn't just answer my question. It like knocked it out of the park. Like that was the best answer I think I've ever heard on how to respond. I, I like your, your, you should respect pain. I think that's probably the best answer I've ever heard on it. Yeah. Like, not, not fear it, but respect it. Yeah. No, I agree. All right. We have another question. Two more questions. Amanda Hall said, lots of treadmill time lately, and I feel like I'm overcompensating with my quads and my stride is just off. Any way to activate glutes and glutes and hips prior or during to treadmill runs? You know, when I um, get these questions, um, I have two colleagues that um, I actually just spoke with this morning at Duke Data Analysis, and um, they, they are the, the specialists in that. So I usually defer to them. So, Amanda, I don't want to give you a really thorough answer, you know, that kind of goes beyond what my my main level of expertise is. I I tend to defer to them because I have them. Um, what I would tell you on that is um, investing in a gait analysis um, is great. And I would not invest in a gait analysis that's done by somebody who mostly does orthotics or shoe wear. Um, they are looking usually from a relatively limited lens. Um you know, find a physical therapist that does that. Um, I think that's where you're going to get the best insights and they can use cognitive behavioral therapy. So they don't look at it. It's just like, Oh, well this muscle's weak and this muscle's tight. So strengthen this muscle. Sometimes it's how your brain decides to, uh, you know, load and you have to change how the brain decides to do an automated activity like that. So it's pretty in depth, but there's services out there that do that, Amanda. So I look for that and you'll probably get far better answers from that than you can for me. Dr. Dieter, do you have anything on quad overcompensation? Uh, that is way far out of my depth. Okay. Just make <laughs> want to be out of the conversation. You were looking a little a little out there. Just wanted to make sure. No, I did do a lot of EMG work in my master's, but it was on cycling, not not treadmill. So I really can't speak much to to treadmill work. It's cardio, cardio all translates to the exact same. I read it on T Nation. Correct. <laughs> running, running and cycling are exactly the same. They are. They're both, they both just make you breathe faster. And if you're on a treadmill, you don't go anywhere. Like, Jay, have and, you ever, and, and it'll make you weak. So, yeah. yeah. Have you ever ridden a bike for like an hour or two and then got off to try to run? No. <laughs> no. It's, Absolutely not. It's so strange because like you get this like movement pattern of like 90 revolutions a minute and then you yeah. go try to run, which is like, I don't know, 15 revolutions a minute and your brain's all weird and your body's just, it's a very weird adjustment from trying to go from cycling to running. What if we invented like triathlete shoes and they were really, really big shoes that had spring, like those spring spring shoes. So you could run really fast, but you wouldn't go faster. I'm just saying, like, we have a product, we have a product in the making here. I'm thinking, oh my god, shoes. <laughs> Mike, if you ever wondered what goes on during our shows, that's pretty much it. Me going, oh my god. Um, so Chris has a question. After, I like that. Ooh, after having, I like it. After having suffered a herniated C3 and four, ah. I feel anytime I do upper body training, especially pushing chest, shoulders, et cetera, my upper traps are lit up. Can you shed light on this? Yeah. Um, I had a, I, I even hesitate to say this because of uh, the joke, but I actually fractured my C4. So uh, I, I know what that feels like. Uh, not fun. And um, I have found a similar thing in myself and, and some other folks I've worked with. Um, in pushing stuff, push-ups tend to, you know, work better. They found the uh, bench press. Switching to decline, 
I found was, was a huge thing that helped that because there are some translational forces that occur when you're benching. You're just pushing your head against the bench. A healthy neck or a less irritable neck won't tolerate it, won't uh, worry about that. But I found by depressing my scapula, which has to happen when you're in a decline, because otherwise your shoulders go up to your ears. Um, by using my lower traps, my lats more tend to inhibit my upper traps a lot, and I felt a lot more comfortable. Um, dips, um, if your shoulders can take it, can be another option. Um, and also, sometimes you just have to retrain your motor patterns. I mean, if you've been doing the lift a certain way, and every time you pull, instead of depressing your scapula, you're elevating. Um, if you keep repeating that motor pattern with the same load, it's probably going to just ingrain that motor pattern. So you may have to back off your training, uh, not in frequency or volume, but in intensity until you ingrain these new motor patterns. And uh, I found I needed to do the same thing with my own training and many others. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be able to load again. You just may have to change your motor patterns. Interesting. Man, how, how are you – like you are, you are proof that physical therapy works because you're still walking around and seem pretty, <laughs> pretty mobile to me. So – um, the, le- the we have a question from YouTube. So this is our first question I think that's ever come in from YouTube. So congratulations, Christy. We're new broadcasting YouTube live. Uh, so Christy, I have a patella for, uh, femoral issue caused by a bone structure issue. I'm told it's not fixable. I want to start lifting after losing 40 pounds. Where can I start uh, while preventing locking or painful popping? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that's a really challenging issue. And I'm sorry you're dealing with that. Um, there's a lot of theories as to why it might be happening, which I think gets to the, uh, the best answer for you, Christy. But a good percentage of people that have the problem that you're talking about um, is that they usually have, uh, A, they're usually almost always female. It's a high propensity of female versus male. And um, they tend to have relative weakness or motor control problems with their lateral hip muscles. Um, so that would be one place I'd start is uh, working on the glutes, working on the abductors. Uh, some good evidence showing that that correlates with improved knee symptoms. Um, next, uh, ankle dorsiflexion, getting your mobility of your ankles and dorsiflexion is another correlate that, I, that we found. And then finally, load management. Um, you know, I find that sometimes using your own body weight can be too much, and that's why I have people doing deloaded lunges or deloaded squats until they can accommodate their full body weight. And when I say deloading, think of the Gravitron, you know, when you do, if you can't do a pull-up, you know, use a Gravitron to, you know, deload your weight. Use that same concept when you're reacclimating your body to step-ups or lunges, if you feel like you're ready to do that. Perfect. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Brad, did you have anything that you wanted to touch on that we did not? Any questions? Mike's shoe size, social security <laughs> number, anything that you had questions on? How many surgeries have you had at this point? <laughs> uh, well, five of them were on a reconstruction of my big toe, which ended up in a partial amputation. Uh, that's a oh, long story. Yeah, that got crushed from a football injury as well. Um, two, one on my elbow, one on my patella. And uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Do you, so your, your, your 10 punch punch card is almost full. Yeah. I, I, my next one's free. So that's good to know. Yeah. Do you do your own physical therapy? God, no, 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 no. That is, that is the worst thing you can do for yourself. Yeah, you bad. always outsource that you're horribly unobjective. And uh, no, I, I actually went through insurance at my own clinic because I wanted to be exactly, I had my own chart, everything. Yeah. I needed I needed the theater of being a patient as much as the uh, 
the mm-hmm. skill. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer in. Like, I notice when somebody else does my programming for lifting for me versus when I do it, my progress accelerates versus me modifying oh, yeah. progress because oh, yeah. I take the path of least resistance, which sure. is sitting, sitting on my chair right here. So perfect, guys. Well, Mike, I cannot thank you enough for uh, for joining us today. This was a uh, this was a great conversation. It was an absolute blast. Um, I learned a lot. I hope you know. Brad, Brad, Brad actually got, we got Brad to say that it was out of his wheelhouse. So that made my day um, <laughs> very much out of my wheelhouse. Not very often that we can get a question that Brad goes, it's out of my, he does when he, when he, when it is, but it's not very often we get those on here. So I'm very happy that that happened and I got to see it and I have it on film. Um, so do you have anything that you wanted to, uh, how can people get a hold of you, Mike? I think probably the best way to find me is at uh, my website at uh, spectrumfit.net. Um, I have, probably about 10, 15 years plus of blogs. So if you want to have any, uh, any more information on some of my writings, it's there. Um, and there's ways to get a hold of me from there. If you have any you know questions for me. So, and that is spectrum. Is that, fit. Is, is, that, is that correct? Did I spell that right? It's uh, yeah, you did. Yep. Perfect. So spectrum, spectrum fit.net. You can get a hold of Mike. Um, I believe you're in, you're in our Facebook group too, I believe. Yeah. So, um, if you guys see Mike around, you can say hi, um, contact him through his website. Um, and if you have any questions we didn't get to, feel free to make a post in the group and our moderators will do their best. And if we can't answer it, we will tag somebody who is appropriate to help you out or point you in the right direction where you can get help. So that is all she wrote. Um, otherwise Brad and I will be here just by ourselves talking about, astronaut nutrition and maybe maybe we can talk about horse nutrition tomorrow because i'm looking at horses i know you're you're a horse nutrition guy now brad <laughs> apparently i don't and, know, and, I don't know and, how this happened we got we got a uh, horse box the a monthly box for my wife has a horse and we got a monthly i got her a monthly subscription box and they came with vet wrap so i had to wear the vet wrap today i was gonna ask if you were like <laughs> yeah it was, later or what you were doing no that's a big sweatband you know yeah, it was just simply wear this during your live, and I, I don't really think I had a choice in the matter. It was you're wearing this, and okay. Playing some tennis is that what you're doing? Yes, but this is I. You know, it amazes me. We both said that. You know, my wife's and my my wife's a nurse. And I was a paramedic. We both said we can't believe that this is not used more in medicine, in human medicine. The vet wrap, like, because it doesn't stick to hair or fur, so they use it for animals all the time. But it oh, sticks nice. to itself, and I can't believe that. Like, <clears throat> I would use this to secure. Isn't it just is it like Coban? Yeah, yeah, but it's just not used like widely enough. I don't think like this is. Oh, I love COVID. Yeah, it's it's amazing, but I, I can tell you, I've never seen it on an ambulance. I've seen it in a couple of ERs, but never in an ambulance. But this should absolutely. I've had it on me now since like eight a.m., nine a.m., and uh, it's still there. But it would hold in IVs and make people easier. So you got a new uh, new niche, the hairy hairy guy market. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I think that's a already existing niche in a whole other business sector that I don't, I don't want to, that I don't want to touch. I got enough on my plate. That's the last thing I need. <laughs> so, all right, guys. Well, Mike, thank you very much for uh, joining us and we will see you guys tomorrow. Take care. Awesome. Thanks guys. Bye. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of MI Live, a podcast from Macros Inc. If you've enjoyed the show, please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate it. Until next time.